0: Father, we've just sung a confession to you that we need you every hour, or every hour we need you. Father, as we come now to your word, as we come to hear from you this morning, we confess that we need you now than ever. Lord, we need you to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to open our ears, so that we can hear and see and believe and trust those things that are written in Father, I pray that as I preach, as I speak, Lord, I come to you, I need you, I need your strength. Father, work through me that my words would be your words. Or that what I say would be your truth. In the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take that truth from my lips and apply it to the hearts of those who hear. Father, starting with me. So Lord help us. Your spirit to be with us to open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things from your law this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Just a side note before I start, I found it kind of ironic that we sat down to sing I Stand in the base of the Presence, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I understand why we did it, it was nice to be able to sit in we just I sat down and I could see these wheels turning, and I was like, "We're going to sit to sing. I stand, and that's okay. We can still stand amazed in the presence, whether we're sitting or standing, whatever it is." Galatians four, one through seven. Yes, we are halfway through the book of Galatians. Today, we're going to read the first seven verses of Galatians four. I hear the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir, through God. If you remember back a couple of sermons ago, when, we, when I preached through um, Galatians three twenty three through 25, I believe it was, um, Paul used an illustration of a guardian. He was using the law as the guardian before faith had come in Christ. If you remember that illustration, the guardian was someone who was essentially a disciplinarian that was placed over top of a adolescent child in the authority figure of, of the father to escort that person back and forth to school, to, to be with that person, to oversee the underage child, to essentially discipline, to discipline the child. It had no the guardian had no ability to change the child's heart, and had no ability to enact the child to do what was right, only to discipline the person for whatever was going wrong. In chapter 4, Paul actually expands his analogy a little bit further. And if you caught that, when he read it, he said that the heir is no different than a slave, a child is is a slave, though he's the owner of other things. He is under guardians and managers. These managers are putting us in the context of an underage heir, somebody who is heir to a estate, heir to a whatever it may be. When he's underage, he's not to a point where he is mature enough or old enough to manage that estate himself. If you come from a wealthy family, your father was still living, or even if if he had passed and you were still underage and you had not reached the date that was set by your father, Even though your father owned everything, and you were the heir of that inheritance. You were treated by the managers as no more than a slave. You couldn't make any decisions as to what was going to happen with the heir or with the estate. You could not decide what happened with the property. You could not even spend your money the way you wanted to spend your money even though it was theirs. And in that way, the child in the heir, even though he's an heir, is no different from the slave. You think about it. The slave in those times did what the master told him to do. Couldn't chime in, couldn't do anything, just did what the master told him to do. So you can imagine what it would look like to be an heir of a great fortune, and for a set period of time, you could do nothing with it. One commentator said that the managers controlled the property and finances of the miners. Depriving him of all independent action. So that in reality his liberty is reduced to that of a slave. And if you think about it, for an underage child, think of a 12-year-old child, a 12-year-old boy inheriting a million dollars. And immediately my mind went to the movie blank check if you ever saw that. Movie, and he spends a million dollars in six days. So if you can think about it, it's not a bad setup. Is much like what we would call trustees today. There's a trustee in an account he deals with and uses the account and disperses the account as set by the person until the heir becomes of age. What I want you to notice is the almost eerie and dark term that Paul takes when he applies this illustration to us. Look at verse 3. In the same way we also. So now he is putting us in the context of being under guardians and managers. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world.
1: In the same way, also, just like the underage
0: heir was restricted and deprived of all independent action, so too, for you, only your manager was not someone who had your best interests Instead, it was the elementary principles of the world. And this phrase is kind of difficult to understand. It's kind of difficult to nail down exactly what Paul means here. And here's why. In the NASB, which is the New American Standard Version, this same verse reads the elementary things of the world. In the NIV, it reads elemental spiritual forces. In the RSB, which is the Revised Standard Version, is elemental spirits of the universe, and it has been understood in different ways, and does have different uses in scripture. I'm going to give you three of them that I'm going to tell you what I believe applies to this scripture directly, and then in Paul's theology as a well. whole. The first thing that elementary principles of the world can be talking to is it can refer to fundamental principles or rudimentary teachings of a given discipline or system of thought. This is the way that the exact same phrase is used in Hebrews 5. 12. For though by this time you want to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, that's our phrase, the basic principles of the oracles of God. So in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you still need to be taught the elementary things, the, the foundation of faith. It's the same phrase that Paul uses here. So that's one way Scripture interprets it. second way Scripture interprets it comes from 2 Peter 3.10. It can refer to four elemental substances. Earth, fire, wind, and water. So it can refer to the elements. That many ancients believed were the material components of the world. And in 2 Peter 3.10, Peter uses the phrase, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the Lord. And the heavenly bodies that's our phrase, heavenly bodies, will be burned up and dissolved. Now, if you can put yourself back in the first, second, third century, there were some schools of thought that deified earth, water, wind, and fire. They thought those elementary principles were God's. And they believed that the reasons that we had natural disasters, the reasons we had crazy storms and floods and Fires and everything else was when these deities would fight. So fire would get in a fight with water, and who knows what might happen. Earth would get in a fight with wind, and who knows what might happen. So you can see how there's that a little bit of that thinking in the world, possibly in the minds of our readers. The third way it came is with reference to evil and demonic spiritual beings. And it is used in this way in Colossians 2.20. If, with Christ, you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, that's our phrase again, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So you've got three ways that Paul can and has used this, three ways that this has been used in Scripture. rudimentary the teachings, elements of the earth, and elements of spirits or demonic forces in the world. In the immediate context of our passage, I believe that Paul is speaking about the first one. I believe given what Paul is saying in 4, 1-7, through 7, what he has said before and what he is going to say, I believe he is talking about the law and the rituals and the things that the Jews needed to do to be considered right and righteous before God, were the elementary principles. It's the basic teaching of our faith even today. And we're going to dive into this next week a little bit deeper because I started studying it and I realized that it is going to drag this out now. So we're going to look at it specifically next week. But we will need to understand those elementary principles, those foundational beliefs from the Old Testament, from the law, from the rituals, from the tabernacle, from the temple, from the sacrifices, from all of it if we are truly going to understand how Christ is the substance of the shadows that we see in the Old Testament. So in this context, immediately I believe that that is what Paul's talking about. But I also believe that over the scope of the book, what Paul has also said in in chapter 1, verse 4, that he does have in mind slavery to sinful tendencies, slavery to demonic forces that are at work. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, The very first thing Jesus, or that Paul says about Christ is that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from what? The present evil age. The age that is under control by the devil and by his demons. So I believe in Paul's theology and in our theology and the theology of the New Testament. That is clearly a view here as well. Apart from Christ's coming, and you're placing your faith in him, you are in bondage to slavery. You are bound to not only keep those elemental principles, because remember, righteousness before God is perfect adherence to the law. In mind, body, action, will, thoughts, which you can't do because you are enslaved to sin. You are enslaved to the dominion of the present evil age. But the good news is with the error False analogy is there was a time, just as there was a day appointed by the Father that that heir would be out from under the guardians and managers, so too God set for us a day that we would gain access to our inheritance and no longer be considered slaves, but sons. In verses four and five, but when the focus of time had God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the wall, to redeem those under the wall so that we might receive adoptions. adoption as sons. Two verses, and there's several things that we learned very specifically and God's answer to the problem that we have. That we're sinners and we're alienated from God. First, when the fullness of the time had come, Christ came at exactly the right time. Do you realize that? There's a period of time in history that's known as the Pax Romana. It's Latin for Roman peace. It is a time in the Roman Empire when there was relative peace among both sides of the empire. And it stretched from roughly 27 BC to 108 108 AD. And within that time, there was a development of common language. So now you had a language that most of the people spoke There was a favorable means of travel. Rome had built roads to get from city to city to move military personnel from this point of of the empire to that point of the empire to allow for trade, to allow for the easy movement of the king around the empire. And the emergence of an urban civilization that made possible the rapid spread of the Christian message. So imagine, you are in Rome at just the right time when the Roman Empire is peaceable, you have roads you can easily travel, and there are multiple urban areas where groups of people can come together. So you're not traveling hundreds of miles to talk to one person. You're traveling hundreds of miles to talk to a town. This is why in Acts, when we see Paul traveling up and down and around the areas where he's doing his missionary days, he's making relatively easy travel. It's because of what Rome had done. Even in Mark 14 and 15, Jesus recognizes that his coming is in the fulfillment of something. Jesus says now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We might come back to that after the next statement, but just recognize that when when Paul says that Christ had come in the fullness of time, This was a very specific time in history set by God from the foundation of the world to send his son into the world. Not a haphazard, by chance, I think it's time to send him. This was a date set by God. Second thing we learned from this is that God sent forth his son. I appreciated his prayer. I really did. He prayed that God allowed His Son to come. And He did allow His Son to come. But God did not only allow His Son to come, He sent His Son. He told Him, You're going. I'm sending you. First, we see that God is the one who takes the initiative.
1: God sends His
0: Son. We have a problem. We're in need. And God's taking the initiative to send. Remember the fullness of time. There's a plan that's unfolding from the beginning of history until Christ comes. It is God unwinding his plan, what he's going to do. He's taking the initiative from Adam, from Moses, from Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to the nation of Israel, to everything that plays out to Israel, all leading up to the coming of Christ. He's taking the initiative to make that happen. And then the time comes, and Christ is sent But there's a second thing you learn from God sending his son. Christ is eternal. Christ has existed from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. He is eternal. Listen, you can't send someone who doesn't exist. And that may sound crazy, but there are a lot of heresies and a lot of teachers who believe that Christ is the first and greatest creation of God. Christ is the eternal Son of God. Timothy, George, in Covenant of Galatians, reflecting on verse 4, says the coming of Jesus into humanity was not an, an accidental happening in late Antiquity. Not only was the incarnation the fulfillment of my of Old Testament prophecy, but it was the culmination of a plan devised with the eternal counsel of the triune God. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, before the creation of the
1: John, also in his gospel,
0: is very clear that Christ is eternal. In the opening pages of his gospel, he reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was in the beginning and became flesh. God sent forth purposefully his eternal Son into the world. There is about as clear as you can get, Jesus Christ is fully God. But not only is Christ fully God, he is fully man. as the next statement that Paul says makes. Born of a woman. If the sending of Christ shows us his deity, the birth of Christ shows us his humanity. To say that Jesus was born of a woman is the same as saying he was flesh and blood, human being. But while this may sound trivial, it's not. Think about it. Christ has experienced what it means to live a human existence. Now, we're in the 21st century, we obviously have technological advances beyond what they had in the first century. Listen to what was said by Philip Reiki about Christ becoming a child like a Jesus died under the law. For God's son coming under the law included accepting the death penalty his people deserved for breaking. He not only kept the law for his people, but also suffered the punishment through their sins. When Christ became a human being, as Hebrews tells us, that He knew and known and has experienced everything you and I experience. He's experienced the pain that we experience. He's experienced the temptations that we experience. He has experienced the fears, the trials, and the temptations that are common for all human beings. So he knows what it is to live a human life, and that gives us hope. Born under the law means that Christ being born a Jew, born under the law. He was required to keep the law at So he was required to keep everything perfectly, which he did. But consider for a moment that in order to redeem us, in order to save us, Christ had to be born under the curse. That's what I just read. So, being born under the law for Christ meant he was stepping into this world under the curse in order to redeem. Us. <coughs> when Christ came, he came to die.
1: This is why the incarnation at
0: Christmas means absolutely nothing without the cross and resurrection of Easter. Christmas is great. It's a fun holiday, save from the snow. It's a great holiday. But there is nothing in Christmas if Christ is still dead. Mm -hmm. There is nothing in Christmas. There is nothing in his coming if he doesn't die for us Suffer the curse and the wrath of God for us, and rise again three days for us. This means that those who have been set free from sin by faith in Christ, He understands your sin on a deeper level than you understand your sin. He understands the punishment of your sin. He knows what it is to suffer the wrath of God, and He did that for you. He suffered the wrath of God for you. Verse 5 is the culmination of what could be considered a very short confessional statement about the Christian You've been following with me through verse 4. I hope you can see how the glory of God is revealed in this. God's plan across all of redemptive history was to redeem sinners so that he could walk us into his family. Everything that Paul has said so far about Christ's coming, his timely arrival, his eternal deity, his true humanity, and his perfect obedience qualified him to be our Redeemer. Listen to what John Stott has to say. The divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's Redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed man. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous man if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God, or made them the sons of God. You see how all of this is necessary. All of it. You deny any of it. You deny Christ. You deny Christ in his redemptive work on the cross.
1: Verse 5
0: implies that the relationship that you have with the God of the universe is fundamentally changed forever. When you repent of your sins and trust Christ by fundamentally at the basic foundation of your relationship with the God of the universe is change. You are no longer a slave under sin, condemned by the wrath of God. You have become an adopted son of God. Not only does Christ redeem us so God can adopt us, but God gives us the Holy Spirit as a sign of our adoption. Verses 6 and 7, Because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, God, oh, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, through God. God's purpose in sending His Son was not only to secure our sonship by His Son, but to assure us of it by His Spirit. He sent His Son so that we might have the status of sonship, but He sent His Spirit that we might have an experience of. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, witnessing to our sonship and prompting our prayers, is the precious privilege of all God's children. It is because you we are sons that God sent His Sons and sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. No other qualification is needed. If you remember the argument that Paul is fighting in Galatians, he has teachers saying, Yeah, you have faith in Christ, you receive the Spirit, but there's more you need to do. Paul is telling us that, God is telling us through Paul. There's not more that we need to do. It is because you are sons that God has sent his spirit into your hearts. No other qualification is needed. There's no need to recite some formula or strive after some experience or fulfill some extra condition. Paul says to us clearly that if we are God's children, and because we are God's children, God has sent his spirit into our hearts. What we are as Christians, as sons and heirs of God, is not through your own merit or through your own effort. But through God Through his initiative of grace Who first sent his son to die for us And then sent his spirit To live us So my question for you today is Are you living as a slave Or are you living as a son Are you still A slave to the elementary principles Of this world Are you still looking to the law To find Your justification with God or you see in the sending of His Son what God has done for you. Already accomplished in Christ. Mm-hmm. If you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, you will be forgiven. You will become a son of God and He will send you his Spirit to testify to you about it. So again, are you living as a slave? Or are you living as a son? That's correct. Father, what an amazing truth to know that the reason the purpose that you sent your son was to redeem us. But not only to redeem us, not only to pay the price and the ransom that needed to be paid to release slaves from slavery, but you did that. And then you also took the actual step of adopting us, of moving us from one position to another, moving us from being under your wrath, being under your condemnation, and putting us in your family. Lord, what a privilege and an honor it is to sit here and cry out to you, Father. But I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't experienced that, who doesn't know what it is to be a son of God, that they would know before the death of his Father, open their hearts to see their present condition before you. Help them to see that if they do not have faith in Christ, they are separated from you for all eternity. And they will face the condemnation that is due their sin. face your wrath for eternity. They don't have to. you sent your son to redeem us. And because he's redeemed us, you've given us his spirit to seal that redemption.